0: The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit LifeBaptistChurch.com. We begin this morning with a wonderful text that describes Scripture and some of the benefits that come from Scripture. It's found over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I love that text. Scripture is God's word. It is breathed out by God. Or some translations would have, it is inspired by God. And it says that it is profitable or it is beneficial for four essential needs. And there's more than that, but there's just four that are mentioned right here in this text. And that is, Scripture is profitable for teaching. And when it talks about teaching, it's not talking about the method of teaching, but rather it is talking about the content of teaching. That is, it's speaking of divine instruction or doctrine. So teaching tells us what is right. It also is profitable for reproof. That is, rebuking to convict a person of misbehavior or false doctrine. Reproof equips believers with divine truth, and it exposes falsehood, and sin, erroneous belief, as well as ungodly conduct. So reproof tells us what is not right. It's also beneficial for correction. Correction restores something to its proper condition. So once false beliefs or sinful behavior have been exposed by God's Word, God's Word also corrects that behavior. So that being said, correction tells us how to get right. And then finally, it talks about The training in righteousness. It's beneficial for training in righteousness. On this side of eternity, God's word will continuously instruct and equip us on righteousness, how to walk in righteousness. So in that side, training in righteousness tells us how to stay right. So let's just kind of bring those together for just a moment. God's word is profitable for teaching us what is right, telling us what is not right, informing us how to get right, and then training us how to stay right. I'm a simple guy, but that sounds like something we could all use. That sounds like something if we incorporate that into our lives, it might reduce some of the current drama we're walking through. If we make a habit of being in God's Word regularly, we might find ourselves in a place where it removes some future drama from ever actually touching our lives. We know there's things that come around that are unexpected you can't control, but there's sometimes we find ourselves in difficult places because we have bypassed the clear teachings of God's Word. It sounds like something to me that is incredibly valuable. For the person who wants to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. We need God's word. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to memorize God's word. We need God's word as a steady diet coming into our lives. And a part of the way we get that diet coming in is through our individual personal study of God's word. We need to be in God's word. And I'm not saying this on a side of legalistic type of teaching, but you need to be in the word daily. And it's not anything that I'm saying like, you have to do this to be a good Christian. No, you need to do that to walk in wisdom. You need God's instruction coming into your life day by day, moment by moment. So in addition to your own personal study of God's word, we also have a wonderful gift that God has blessed his church with. And that is the teaching and the preaching, the proclamation of God's word. We are blessed in this country to have some incredibly gifted Bible teachers and Bible expositors. We are blessed on that side. But let me also say, we have a lot of motivational speakers who occasionally will quote a verse. And there's a difference between the two. So, There's some people, when I I say this, and please don't, don't think that I'm saying this in a judgmental way. I'm simply trying to point something out. And that is some people preach the word because the word is their message. Other people use the word because the word backs up the point they're trying to make. So how do you know if what you're hearing is God's word truly being proclaimed or whether or not it is the opinion of the teacher who might be sharing it? You all are listening to me this morning. How do you know if what I'm sharing with you is accurate and true and biblical and theologically sound? One of the things I've shared for years is that I want you all to be like the Bereans. I want you to go back after I preach and see in the word if these things are true. I, I got no problem with people going back and studying up on the things that I'm sharing because I want you to know if it's God's word or whether or not it's Paul's opinion. I've also shared for years now that as Christians, we need to have a finely developed hooey detector in our life. Complete with alarms and bells that go off in our mind every time something is shared and it's not theologically sound. I've also shared over the years that knowing your Bible will make you unfit for a lot of preaching. Because when you hear it and you're like, that doesn't align with Scripture." I can't go down that same path because they took that out of context. That's not correct. This is not an alignment. And I'm not trying to share these things so that people get a critical spirit. What I am trying to do is encourage people to have a discerning mind so that they see what is in God's word and they know whether or not it is of God or whether it's the opinion of others. So how do you know if what you're hearing is truly God's perspective? How do you develop out that alarm system in your life? I say this, and I say it cautiously. How do you know that that celebrity pastor is actually sharing God's truth? And, here's, and, and let me just say, the reason I'm bringing this out, and I speak as celebrity pastor, I'm talking like really big church, book deals, contracts, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers on Facebook. And let me just say, you can speak truth and be doctrinally sound from a massive church. And you can also not speak truth and not be doctrinally sound from a massive church. But here's why I bring that out. Sometimes when people see the number of people who follow a pastor, they stop asking the important questions like, is that really true? Because they think based on the number of people, they think based on the platform that whatever the person is sharing has to be true. How do you know that what you're hearing is something that is directly from God's Word. I want us to build that idea out this morning. So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today to the book of John, chapter number 7. I'll be in verses 10 through 18. As you find your place in the text, let me just say from the very beginning, this is one piece of a much, much bigger puzzle. Um, in fact, if we were to really develop it out, we're going to have to talk about what are the essential truths, what are the non-essential truths. We also need to point out, in a message like this, that all because you disagree with someone doesn't mean they're a heretic. Because sometimes we can take this to the far extreme. There, there's levels of disagreement. For example, sometimes it's just a difference of perspective or a difference of opinion. Sometimes it's bad doctrine, and many times bad doctrine is underdeveloped doctrine. It's where somebody doesn't know where that thought goes to the next piece that is essential for doctrine. Sometimes it's false teaching, and false teaching always hurts the body to which is hearing it, and sometimes it is actual heresy. In heresy, the word is usually kind of kept off to the side for teaching that goes against the doctrines of the gospel itself. So all because you disagree with someone doesn't mean they're a heretic, doesn't mean they're a false teacher. But I do want to try to provide another tool for you this morning so that when you hear preaching of scripture, there'll be a discernment in your mind, is that of God or is that that person's opinion? That being said, look with me in your Bibles, John chapter 10, or John chapter 7, verses 10 through 18. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, look at the source, look at the source. Verse 10 and following. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, "'Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. "'The Jews were astonished, saying, "'How has this man become learned, "'having never been educated?' So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask once again this morning, Would your spirit guide us in the truth? Help us to know today what is completely of you and what is of popular opinion. Help us to have that discerning filter that we need to have in order to rightly divide your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning... We're going to kind of begin verses 10 through 13, and I need to tell you from the very beginning, 10 through 13 are transitioning verses that are used for context. So it doesn't take that long, but they're necessary to make sure we know where the flow of the story is going from here. In verse number 10, it tells us that Jesus went to the feast in Jerusalem after his brothers had already arrived. He went in secret so as not to draw attention to himself. That is, this is a feast of which, by the time he got there, others had already gotten to Jerusalem. The the roads would have been empty, so he was able to go up in a relatively secret fashion. Now, prior to his arrival in Jerusalem, there was a debate about Jesus' character, and the opinion was divided. There's one group that said, he's a good man. And there's another group that said, no, he's not. He's a deceiver, and he's leading people astray. And ironically, both of them were wrong because he was not merely a good man because good men do not teach what he taught. In fact, theologian John Stott said Jesus' teachings were egocentric in nature. And that wasn't a derogatory term. What he was saying is his teachings kept pointing back to himself. Think for a moment about the I am statements. Jesus said, I am the bread of the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His teachings kept pointing back to himself. Also, Jesus taught that the Old Testament scriptures were mainly written about him. He said in John chapter 5 verse 46 that Moses wrote about me. In John chapter 8 verse 56, he said that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it, and was glad. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, using only the Old Testament scriptures, it says that he taught and explained to his disciples that these things were written concerning himself. In other words, he's looking at the Old Testament and says, "It's written about me." He was at the focus of what these passages were about. Good men do not claim that the Bible's written all about them. And for that matter, good men do not claim to be God Himself, which is something that He did in chapter 5, verse 18, chapter 8, verse 24, 828, 858, 1033. He made multiple claims that good men would not make. Some of those other claims that took people by surprise, where He said that He came down from heaven, He's the Savior of the world, that He determines the destiny of people, that he's the source of eternal life, that he's one with the Father, that he has the power to raise the dead, that he is without sin, that he has all authority in heaven as well as on earth, that he has authority to forgive sins, he has the authority to answer prayer, He even said he's greater than the temple, he's greater than Jonah, he's greater than Solomon, he's greater than Jacob, and he's greater than Abraham. He said that he is the Messiah, and he claimed to be the Son of God. Good people don't make those kind of claims. Now, this is a a text that's out of mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is the author. It's been used many, many times, but it so encapsulates exactly this thought. Here's what he said. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Man. That concept is so clearly written out in what C.S. Lewis described, but it's also seen in how Jesus taught. Jesus wasn't merely a good man, and he also wasn't someone who led other people astray. Deceivers do not perform self-authenticating miracles to back up their message, and that's exactly what Jesus constantly did. Now, while the authorities rejected Jesus the Sanhedrin, which was the legal branch of Jewish life, had not rendered a formal judgment about him. As a result of that, the people were very nervous about speaking up about their opinion based on verse 13, because if they gave their opinion and it contradicted the official response, it could mean that they lost access to the synagogue, of which all Jewish life would flow from that. So in a broad sense, this is in your notes, in a broad sense, Verses 10 through 13 are about the character of the teacher. Who is he? And verses 14 through 18 are about the content of the teacher. Can he be trusted? Now, we're going to spend the lion's share of today's message in verses 14 through 18. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus arrived in the middle of the feast, which this particular feast would have lasted right around a week. So maybe at day three, day four, sometime around then, is when Jesus arrives at this feast. And when he showed up, he began to teach in the temple. Now, it's the first time we see the word teach show up in verse 14. But we also see how they received his teaching in verse 15. His teaching was unequaled. His mastery of Scripture was profound. It amazed them. The exact same thing happened on the Galilean hillsides whenever He had preached the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 7. The same thing happened in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth back in Matthew 13. And the same thing happened in Capernaum over in Mark chapter 1. When people heard Jesus teach, they were amazed, stunned by what He was sharing. Now, in verse number 15, they asked the question, How has this man become learned having never been educated? Now, I want to clarify, having never been educated does not mean he was illiterate. For that matter, it doesn't even mean that he did not have formal education and training. What it's simply telling us is Jesus was not trained by one of the recognized rabbinical schools of that day. Schools that were led by Gamaliel, Shammai, Helial, or any of the other uh, first century um, rabbis. So since they could not refute his teaching, they questioned his credentials. In their mind, they're thinking, if he didn't come from one of our schools, then he's sharing his own opinion And therefore, he has no right, no authority to say anything at all. And Jesus responded in verse 16 with, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, it's true. It didn't come from a human institution. But that doesn't mean it is my opinion. Rather, it came directly from God himself. So he goes on in John eight twenty eight to say, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things that the Father taught me. So Jesus' teaching was from God the Father. Therefore, by rejecting his teaching, they're rejecting God the Father. Now, the rabbis of Jesus' day, as well as the rabbis of today... They would teach by going back to another source who came before them. Another well-known, well-recognized, well-established rabbi. I've shared with you all before that I spent about two, two and a half years or so studying scripture with two rabbis here in town. And we would get to a certain text and we would open that one up. And as soon as we read it, one of the rabbis would say the same thing every single time. He would say in that, Rashi says... And then he would begin to quote. And for those of you that are not familiar with Rashi, Rashi was an 11th century rabbi who was known for being able to pull the basic meaning of a text out in a concise fashion. Even to this day, Rashi's teachings in Judaism are central to contemporary Jewish thought. So every time we would read a text, the rabbi would say, Rashi says about this text. We go to the next one, Rashi says about this text. So I kept trying to pull out like, What do you think of the text? Because Rashi's not here. What, What do you think about this text? And he kept going back to Rashi. So he would go to Rashi and I would say, well, here's what scripture says about this. And I would allow scripture to interpret scripture. Here's what was happening in that moment. We both went to different sources. He went to Rashi. I was going back to scripture. That exact same thing, not only happening today, it was happening back in the first century. And when we understand that part of Jewish thought and Jewish teaching, then some other passages make a little bit more sense. For example, when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, after he was finished, the crowd said they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In other words, their primary teachers would go back and they would share somebody else's quote. But then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say things like this. You have heard it said of men of old, but I say to you. And in fact, there was an authority within his teaching. If you were to go back even into the Old Testament, you'll notice that even with those prophets who were sent from God, they began their message with, thus saith the Lord. In other words, they weren't basing it upon themselves. They were saying, this is what God says. And then Jesus would come along and he would say, I say to you. There's authority and how he is teaching. So we go into this next section right here. And look at what verse 17 says. Jesus speak and he said. If anyone is willing to do his will. He will know of the teaching. Whether it is of God. Or whether I speak for myself. Believe it or not. This is a stinging rebuke. Against this crowd. Remember his crowd. Those around him. Were some of the elite of Judaism. Judaism. Those who were questioning him were some of those who were steeped in a very rich Jewish tradition of which they prided themselves in doing the right thing and knowing the right truth. And here's what Jesus says. If you did God's will, you would recognize God's truth. Did you see it in the text? If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know. He will know if the teaching is whether it is of God or whether or not it is from myself. His logic is very basic. Those who know God as the ultimate source of truth have no trouble spotting truth when it's taught. Those who know truth don't care about the credentials of the one speaking as long as they're speaking truth. But it doesn't matter how many credentials someone has if they're not speaking truth. Those who love truth and know truth and know God, they say, "Mm, I can't go with you on that. So here's what I'm trying to show you. There is an amazing parallel for your life and my life in this. And that is further knowledge is based on current obedience. Do you want further knowledge? Do you want to grow in your understanding? Do you want to be able to discern truth? If that is your heart, then it comes back to, are you willing to obey what he's already showed you? When I talk to Christians, sometimes they're talking about their devotional time and they'll say, Paul, it doesn't seem like God's teaching me anything new. Like I read... And I recognize the words and, and it's, it's okay, but I'm not growing. I'm not gaining anything out of it. And it's gone on for weeks and sometimes months. I don't, I, I can't tell you the last time I learned something new. And from their perspective, many times the prayer is, God, teach me something new. To which God's response might be, obey what I've already told you. In other words, what's the point in giving you something else that you're not going to actually obey? So th- That idea is coming out in here. If you'll remember, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, "I will give you knowledge based on disobedience." Genesis chapter three, verse five. In this text, Jesus is saying, "I'll give you knowledge, but it's based on obedience." If you would, look over real quick, John chapter 14. In verse number 21, just something to kind of put along with that. Here's what Jesus said He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the obedience piece, is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And here it is, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. I will show myself to him. I will help him to understand me. In other words, If you're willing to obey, he says, man, I'll show you who I am. There is a direct link between our further knowledge and our current obedience. Spiritual understanding is not produced solely by learning facts or learning procedures. Rather, it depends on obedience to known truth. Obedience to God's known truth will develop discernment between falsehood and what is right. Look at verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. There are at least two characteristics of every false teacher and every would-be Messiah who is out there. First, he speaks of himself, that is, on his own authority and not God's. And second, he seeks his own glory and not God's. Those two things are true of every false teacher, every false prophet, every would-be Messiah. False prophets, false teachers, they give their own thoughts so that they can gather a crowd and so that they have personal gain. Their goal is not to feed the flock. Their goal is to fleece the flock. They're trying to get something out of them. And the apostle Paul warned us about this crowd. He said that these false teachers are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. Romans 16, 18, who are guilty of teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Titus chapter one, verse 11. Now compare that with Jesus Jesus never sought his own glory based on chapter 5 verse 41. According to our stories of Jesus it said he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew chapter 20. False teachers are materialistic but it says the son of man didn't even have a place to lay his head, Luke 9:58. False teachers are self-seeking and they're demanding. And yet Jesus lived a life and a ministry of serving people and caring for people and loving people and serving and ministering to them deeply. So take that story as the backdrop. And now let's develop out in the last seven to eight minutes what your key truth of the morning is. How do you know if what you're hearing is man-centered ideas or God-centered truth? Here's your big truth. Bible teaching has God as the source, our good as a gift, and God's glory as the goal. Bible teaching has God as the source, our good as a gift, and God's glory as the goal. Now we're going to break down that statement in small little chunks and the first part of that is Bible teaching has God as the source. We have to look to the source. We have to go back to the source. Everything flows from the source. And when the source upstream is bad, then the flow downstream is never good. You got to go back to the source. So in this text, you find that the crowd could not figure out Jesus' source. They knew that what he was saying was profound, but they're like, who's he quoting? What rabbi is he referring to? Where did he get this education? Because we know he didn't go to one of our schools to which Jesus comes back and he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, God the Father is the source. And then he gives us a warning in verse number 18. He who speaks from himself. In other words, he who speaks from himself as his own source seeks his own glory. Write this off to the side somewhere. When self is the source, glory is the goal. When self is the source, glory is the goal. Bible teaching has God as the source. So ask some of these questions when you're hearing teaching going on. That is, is the person teaching the Bible or are they using the Bible to make their point? Is this person allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture? Is this individual holding to scriptural authority or do they vacillate in their perspective based on the latest trends and the latest research and the latest societal whims? Whenever you hear somebody say something like this, This is what the Bible says, but today research has taught us. Let alarm bells go off in your mind. Because what they just said is, I recognize this is in the Bible, but... What I'm hearing out of research trumps that as a source of truth. We've now grown since the Bible was written. We now know more since the Bible was written. Here's the latest research. Let alarm bells go off in your mind. The Word of God is the Word of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Just preach the Word. Now, Bible teaching has God as the source and our good as a gift. Now, how are we defining good in this context? Are we saying that Bible teaching is good for spiritual and eternal stuff? Or are we saying that Bible teaching is good for practical daily stuff? Yes. It's good for both. It doesn't matter whether or not you're talking about eternal matters or you're talking about what's happening this afternoon, it's good for both. Bible teaching is good for daily decisions and good for eternal decisions. It's good for financial planning and leading us to eternal life. It's good for child rearing and providing wisdom and character development and gaining perspective, encouraging the broken, breaking the prideful, lifting the discouraged, and focusing the frazzled. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. God's Word is good. It's good for all of those areas when God's Word is rightly taught and proclaimed claimed, you and I are the beneficiaries from that. Now remember her first text, 2 Timothy three sixteen, where it told us God's word is profitable for, it is beneficial for, it's good for, and it gave us four key ideas. And that is, it's good for teaching us what is right, and telling us what is not right, and informing us how to get right, and training us how to stay right. It's good for all of those things. If you've got no other incentive to study God's word, let your incentive be that we know life is better when it's lived according to God's design. It's as you study his word that you recognize his design. He created us, and he knows us, and he loves us, and his word leads to human flourishing. Here's the last part. Bible teaching has God as the source, our good as a gift, and God's glory as the goal where does the teaching lead people what's the ultimate goal behind a person sharing a message whenever there is a message being taught or proclaimed where is the focus is the focus on you and i or is the focus on god Is the goal here so that you and I can get ours? Like we can get all of our money, we can get our blessings, we can get our health, we can get all sorts of good stuff for us, or is the focus on God and His glory? Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7, listen to what God said of people. He says, those whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It also goes on by the psalmist to say that You have set your glory above the heavens and the heavens declare the glory of God. Philippians 2, one of the famous texts that we always like to share. It talks about the fact that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here it is. To the glory, to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. It's so that the Father is glorified. Revelation 4.11, it says, The 24 elders, they will say, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to humanity. He is the hero of the story. And the moment you and I turn it around so that we're at the center of the Bible as opposed to God, at the center of his word, we're going to miss it. Because Jesus says, those who come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Do you know one of the reasons why people don't like Bible preaching? Because it's not about them. It's about God. It's about his glory. Do you know one of the reasons why people turn back when his word is proclaimed at the hard moments? Because proclaiming his word is going to mean that he's calling us to sacrifice. He's calling us to give. He's calling us to serve. He's calling us to go. He's calling us like some missionaries and some people around the world to literally die for the sake of the gospel. And when you and I turn the story around where it's about us and not about him, we're not willing to walk in faith in those passages of scripture. Instead, we say, that's enough for me. You can build a crowd when you say it's all about you. And the crowd gets thinned out sometimes when you say it's not about you, it's about him. But can I tell you, when our perspective is right, listen, God walks with you through those difficult moments. You get into those times and you say it's better than I ever imagined. Literally, I've had moments where I'm sitting with in teaching pastors, 750 pastors in the Middle East, some in Yemen, some in Saudi Arabia, some in other places in Egypt. I had one guy who walked in from one of those mess or one or for one of the services, and he had just watched one of his church members in a church of 15 people get beheaded in the public square because of his faith in Christ. And that man came in, and from the time the service started, until late after the service, he was worshiping and he was praising God. And we were talking to him and I asked him, how do you all do it under persecution? How do you do it? How do you live out your faith? And he looked at me and he says, I don't know how you do it. He said, we have to depend upon God. He says, God has to be our goal. He says, I feel sorry for you because you don't face the persecution we face. Listen, if the goal is about us, We will not walk in the hard places with God. But when the goal is about Him and about His glory, in that difficult moment, you can submit to God and say, God, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I submit to you. Be glorified through my life in this moment. Be glorified in my life through this decision. Be glorified in my life. Whatever I do, may it all point back to you. That's what Bible preaching does. So, Bible preaching... It has a source which is God. It's got a gift which is our good. And it also leads us to a place in which God's glory is the goal. I said at the beginning, it all goes back to the source. When the source upstream is bad, the flow downstream is never good. But when the source upstream is God, then the flow downstream is always for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the fact that it's through the proclamation of your word, God, that you develop disciples who are not living for self. But God, we are walking in submission to you. We're not making it about us. We just keep walking and saying, God, be glorified. God, I submit. Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would give us a discerning mind, not a critical spirit so that we throw stones at everybody who disagrees with us, but give us a discerning mind, God, so that we could recognize truth when it is proclaimed. God, help us to be people who walk in truth. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.